Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, talking about race and racism isn't easy. There are a lot of questions that we may not know how to answer while we're in the moment and many situations that we may not know how to handle when we are in them. We also may be confused about how to raise children who are true allies and who are willing to step up, have tough conversations, um, not only do what's right in the moment, but also what could be helpful in the long run as we strive for lifelong relationships and life-changing opportunities for growth. How do we ensure that we do better and embrace a willingness to engage in courageous discomfort as we dive into our questions about race and racism? For this, we have two amazing women on today, Shantara McBride and Rosalind Wiseman. Shantara McBride is a Texas-based author, preacher, speaker, and teacher. She is the founder of Marvelous University, a social enterprise that offers life coaching and success planning for young people, specializing in leadership development for girls and young women. Shantara was awarded the Profiles and Leadership Award from SMU for having made a significant impact on the quality of life of girls and women all over the country. She is the author of Love Your Jiggle, The Girl's Guide to Being Marvelous, an inspirational book for girls ages 11 to 17. And she is the co-author of Courageous Discomfort, Conversations About Race and Racism with Rosalind Wiseman. Now, Rosalind Wiseman is a Colorado-based speaker and best-selling author, perhaps best known for Queen Bees and Wannabes, Helping Your Daughter Survive Clicks, Gossip Boyfriends, and the New Realities of Girl World, the basis of the hit movie and Broadway musical Mean Girls. She has authored several other parenting books, including Masterminds and Wingmen and the Owning Up curriculum, which I have fabulous. Rosalind is a regular contributor for National Public Radio, the New York Times, and for the Today Show and other national media, and has been on our podcast now twice before talking about bullying and social aggression, as well as getting granular in uh, really tough conversations. Definitely check those out. Shantara and Rosalind are graciously here to talk about their book, Courageous Discomfort. So welcome to both of you to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you. I'm so Thank glad you you're here. Thank you very much. Yes. You're so welcome. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Um, so before we dive into everything, for those who haven't had the opportunity to meet you, to read your book, to your, get to know what you're all about, can you tell us maybe one really interesting tidbit about you? Like maybe what gets you up in the morning or, you know, what really drives you? And how did you wind up writing a book together on race and racism? <laughs> well, 
I'll start. Um, what gets me up in the morning is coffee. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> so I I start my day with coffee and, and Peloton. I have um, a tread that I like to use and I get that. Those are the things that I do every, well, let me stop. <laughs> In the morning. <laughs> in the morning. Shantara, do you do you have a favorite person on the Peloton? I oh, do. yes, she does. I do. <laughs> I love Dr. Chelsea Jackson Roberts. And so she's she's my yoga person. And on the tread, I love Jocelyn Thompson Rule. Oh, and I mean, best. I do a lot of classes from folks across the pond. I love listening to them. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm moving to England. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It is a pleasant accent to listen to. It's true. It really is. <laughs> it, it really is. Okay. And, and Rosalind, what, what kind of gets you up in the morning or so what's a tidbit about you before we get into the answer to how in the world did you wind up writing this book together? Well, I will tell you something that Shantara knows, of course, but not many people know, which is that in the last, it doesn't get me up in the morning, but pretty much every day now I am going to dance classes. Hey, so So in the last, yeah. So in the last couple of years, um, last two years, I think, right. It's about last two Mm -hmm. years. Um, I have been, I started off by doing it cause I, I wanted to, but it was really uncomfortable. And, um, and now I go all the time. Mm-hmm. All the time. What kind of like dance four, class? Four is days it? a week, wow. all different kinds. One time, Shantara came with me to one of my classes when she huh. was when we were working on courageous discomfort together, and she came to Boulder to you know so we could write together. So she came to one of my classes that was sort of like I you know maybe a little little hip hop, little mm-hmm. I don't know, sort of like that. But I also do all different kinds of classes um, wow. that are um, really grounding for me and really super. Amazing like super helpful to me. Um, so yeah, that's something that I'm doing. That's not necessarily always in the morning, but definitely new for me. That is so interesting. My son is now taking hip hop. That's, that's really amazing. And I think people who dance are extraordinary because it's not my, it's not where I sit. I mean, I would like to, I'm, I'm a performer. And so I, I pushed myself about two years ago too, to start my voice lessons again. And, uh, and so for me, it's like voice, then acting, then dancing was always mm-hmm. like, you know, I had to rate them when you were trying yeah. out for a musical. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, dancing mm-hmm. number three. But I think that's really <laughs> amazing. Okay. So what what got you guys to write this book together? It's it's definitely a challenging book to I'm sure have written. And it's it asked the the readers to be courageous and jumping in. So what got you writing that book together? Well, I would say in the summer of 2020, when everybody, we were in the middle of a pandemic, um, several unarmed people, Black people were killed by police. It was just, Mm -hmm. there were protests going all over around the world. And Ross and I have a friendship and a relationship where I could text her and say, you wouldn't believe what somebody who looks like you just said to me, Mm -hmm. because it was, it was. I knew people, I knew white people specifically were trying to absolve their feelings and it was weird. It was weird for them. And they would ask, can I send you flowers? And this truly happened. Like, can I buy you dinner? Should yeah, I, I saw that it? in the book. Yes. Those yeah. are real things. Those are real things. <laughs> I'm just like, nah, I don't think this is, mm-mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so being able to talk to Ross about it and, and that's, that's who we are. That's our relationship. And so being able to say that to her, and we did a couple of webinars for folks on how to be an ally and what allyship really is. And from that, um, Courageous Discomfort was born. 
That's so great. It's it's such a meaningful book, and I really appreciate it, the way that it's set up, asking specific questions and diving in. I was worried when I first started reading one of them because I was like, oh, no, they're just going to tell me that this is a question and not the actual answer. Like, they're going to tell me the mistakes, but not the answer. And, I'll, I'm, and as somebody who is all about tough conversations, <laughs> since that's what I do, mm-hmm. um, I was like, I, I would, I'm hoping they're going to tell me what should have been said in a situation like for example the the one that you just gave when you know your your friend um who you love uh, it was part of your church group um that that they you know did say those words and and you and to your credit like say yeah to the their best intention but we went they went in the wrong direction so for those who are listening right now who are like and give that up please what would you have preferred <laughs> that i mean i know the answer from the book but that's sort of cheating so what would you say would have been something that you would want them that somebody to say to you in that situation um, that that would have been received better and not that kind of, I know it was sort of in the back of your mind going, that doesn't feel right. Like I get what she's trying to do, but that doesn't feel right. What would you have preferred happened? Just simply saying what I'm seeing right now, I know you're seeing and it absolutely sucks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. You know, just starting there and then being able to entertain a dialogue Mm -hmm. instead of the things that we do when people are grieving. It's like, this is what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to send you flowers, but I don't want to come to the house. I don't want to sit in the sadness, in the grief, and I just want to drop off the casserole. I don't want to come in. I I hear you. I hear you. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I just had an experience actually a couple of days ago. It's really interesting as a white person. And I'm also somebody that people have asked uncomfortable questions about parenting and kids and teenagers and racism and homophobia. I mean, stuff for, you know, for a long time. But writing this book um, has given me a lens that I didn't have before to have mostly white people ask me somewhat similar questions that Shantara is describing or say similar things. And so, although I've been doing this work for so, in in variations on the theme for so long, a couple of days ago, a couple of days ago, I was having a conversation with a woman that I don't know well, who knew I had written, she couldn't quite remember what I had written about, but she was like, oh wait, what was that book that you wrote? And I said, it's, you know, Courageous Discomfort, How to Have Brave Life-Changing Conversations About Race. And she started talking to me about um, that her family, she had found out um, that her family had slave owners in her family. And she was talking about her feelings about that. But here's the thing that happened. And I know I'm not even going to look at Shantara when I say this. (laughs) Should I look at Shantara? Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Is that, so she said her, her, uh, you know, and I mean that like, and her, her logical step of what was the appropriate thing to do was to reach out to a very prestigious black professor at a university who let's assume is extraordinarily busy and ask them what she should do. And she looked at me as if this was the answer. And I had this moment. See, now I'm looking down at Shantara. Yeah, me too. I had this I moment. Know. I had this moment. I had this moment. So Shantara, I've even told you so this conversation, right? So I look at her and I say, 
So here's a suggestion that I'd really like for you to consider. I'd like for you to consider Googling reparations, white people, slave owners and their families, because there are a lot of people in this country who are doing that work. And so you do that work um, and then you figure out the things that you need to do because this professor uh, that you think is doing, this professor is very, very busy. So I really am strongly suggesting to you that you do that instead of contacting this professor. Mm -hmm. And what was so interesting about that was that first, and I'm not saying this to be snarky about this woman, it's literally white privilege in action. It is, she was completely befuddled. It had never occurred to her that this woman, this professor should not be the person that she reaches out to. And it didn't occur to her to do the work because her, what she perceived was that her work was actually reaching out to this professor. And I, and I looked at her, I, I was watching her face where, as she went through this thing of confusion, um, of not understanding and of me then sort of the second time saying, this professor is very, very busy. So you really need to do the work first because there are a lot of people doing this work that you are interested in. So it's an interesting place to be where I haven't had those kinds of conversations mm -hmm. and um, that, that I really have not had. And writing this book with Shantara has given me the opportunity to really see from a different lens um, how racism works in more yes. complicated ways, like you're describing right now. Yes. And it's, it's, I think that I, that was very clear from reading the book that, that your eyes were opened as well during it. I, I definitely felt that. Yeah. I, I would love to get a baseline because there's a common misconception that parents often say, I hear often enough that I feel like it's a theme that they want their children not to see color. That's like a very big oh. deal to them, right? Like, because yeah. the intention is good. They're, they're certainly saying it because they, they don't want their kids to be racist. Okay. So, but they, so I don't want my kids to see color or even my kids don't see color. So what should the aim be as a baseline for parents when it comes to teaching kids about race? Parents who want their kids to be accepting and kind and open-minded and definitely not racist, what should they be saying instead or striving for instead? The latter. What you just said, <laughs> is, <laughs> I want my kid to be kind and accepting and loving and, and not racist. Like that in itself, because the whole idea of not seeing color means I see you. I see you and I'm uncomfortable with what I'm seeing right here. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to not focus on that, which in turn means I'm, I'm going to give the impression that I don't, that, that who you are isn't important. Mm -hmm. And that is what I think, um, is, is, a, is, is not what parents really want to do. I grew up as, as we probably all did on this call. And there are a lot of people listening. I grew up in the age of colorblindness. Like we, you know, it was taught it was, and, and when white people said that, they usually said it to people of color. They yes. usually, right? So they weren't saying it to each other. They weren't saying, when I see you, 
I don't see color white person because you look just like you look just like me. But I'm saying it to a person of color and giving them the impression that I'm not racist. And really all that says is I see you, but what you are, who you are, um, I don't want to get caught up in that. So let's ignore that. Let's put that to the side. And that perpetuates racism. So it's not this idea of, of being colorblind. There's no such thing. And young people are not blind. They're not crazy. You know, <laughs> so they're also looking at us like, so you saying we don't see this person that clearly does not <laughs> this person is like, not black. Yeah, this person <laughs> that does not look like me. So so we don't see them. Mm-hmm. And, and so they they're totally confused. And I I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it, right? And so I think being able to see someone's race and see them and also value who they are and also see what's happening in our society to people of color. Mm-hmm. And so there's a way to teach children, to teach young people. You do know that this person was killed because of their skin that we see. You know, mm-hmm. we you do see that this person was, uh, was mistreated at the department store because of the color of their skin that we see. Mm. You know, so it's so being intentional about that and staying instead of being intentional about erasing someone's identity. Mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, to I think for white parents and for parents who are not coming from minorities that have a history of oppression in our country, um, that we as so I'll speak for myself, even as a Jewish person, that I can say, um, I get to choose if I see you or don't see you, but the black person does not get to choose because that's the world they walk around in. And so when we say we don't see color, what we're, what I really hear and what I want, want, what I want white people to understand is that we have a choice and other people don't. And the reason they don't is because of racism. And so, and because of other people seeing someone's color and thinking they should be degraded, dismissed, demeaned because of it. So it's a really important, it's a, it's a really important thing to say, to say to yourself, you know, all good intentions of how I was raised, actually not really helpful. And my judgment about whether that's helpful or not is not as important as the person who's receiving the actions, right? Which are people of color, black people, people who have been systemically oppressed. And so I think we need to listen more, you know, like our, our experiences matter, but they actually, we really need to balance them against the history of what some people are telling us. And that's more important. Um, we have a story in the book of Shantara explaining like how dangerous it is when people say, I don't see color um, in her personal experience. And I think that's just a really, a really good example of how different I think because of race we operate in the world. Yeah. I think when people say it, um, it gives this idea that I'm safe and I'm okay. You know, when, oh, when a white, white person, you mean like yeah, as yeah. a white person yeah. saying it, it, that means it's sort of the way of saying, you know, I'm an ally. Mm-hmm, and and right. I tell people, I tell white people, listen, when you say that to me, that does not, that doesn't give me the impression that you're safe. Actually, I want to put up a wall. Because if you are leading with, you know, I am, I, I'm a, I'm safe. I'm a good mm-hmm. person. I'm a good, all of that. Nah. Cause mm-hmm. for me, it's, it's like, keep listening. 
Keep, mm-hmm. keep pay right. attention to what they're doing. And this whole idea of being colorblind isn't real. Mm-hmm. It isn't real when it comes to racism in this country. And so mm-hmm. I, as, as well-intentioned as I think people can be, th- the intention is really saying, I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear what you're dealing with. I don't want to... Um, I, I don't want to pay attention because also what happens is the exception. So we, we, in our country, we deal with the model minority. And so if you're, I can count, oh my gosh, I don't know how many times I've heard you speak so well. Oh, right. right? That's a microaggression, it's right? Definitely a microaggression, okay. you know, you're so mm-hmm. eloquent. And if I say to a white person, oh, you speak so well. <laughs> it it doesn't it doesn't sit well because oh, then a white person will like what do you mean what do you right? mean are you saying because I'm blonde is it because I'm a woman <laughs> exactly. am I young exactly <laughs> yeah and yeah. so I I, I often think right. when people when you hear yourself when you hear what mm-hmm. you're saying and so saying oh I don't see I don't see race or you you know what at, even even though you're black oh you speak so well. Or you've gone to college or you've written a book or you've done. And it's just like, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is no, I hear you? that. Yeah. That makes, so that I makes a put lot a, of sense. I, I want to put two points to things. One is uh, what Chantara said. One is when someone, when you say something like as an ally, it's sort of equivalent in my mind when someone says, to be honest, or I'm going to be honest with you, because mm-hmm. why do you need to say that? Mm-hmm. right? You're like, you really Just don't, me. like, as soon as someone says, I mean, doesn't, like, if you're listening to this, as soon as someone says, I'm be honest with you, don't you say, don't you think to yourself, why are you saying that? Like, that that what, what, what's been the previous? Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Not so honest. So, ah! I sort of see them as a little bit equivalent, right? That's like, you yeah. like, you're signaling, like, that what's a very complex thing going on with the person who's speaking. Second thing is, um, and you know, Robin, you talked about like, what are some like really concrete things? Like we did, we are not, both of us, both of us are educators and we have very strong opinions and we're social emotional learning experts. So we focus highly on like what to do, right? Here's a problem, what to do. You don't have to take what we're saying as like the truth, but we got strong opinions about how we think we should be in the world. Right. And, um, and we want to make it better. We want to contribute to making it better. So when she, you know, if you're hearing, well, okay, you know, what do I say? If somebody like really moved, if I'm in a meeting and, and that person is black and they, they said something that really moved me or like they did an amazing job with it. Like, well, what do you say? Cause you can't say, you know, oh, you're so well-spoken because then that will come across as racist or a microaggression. You can say like, you know, that point you made and say specifically what the point was that you thought was really, um, you know, like, a good point. They made a great argument. If you may, if you specific, if you're specific about this one point, then that changes, right? The nature of how you're coming across. And, um, and it's a much more effective way to communicate. And frankly, it's a much better way to um, communicate with anybody, right? If, if, a, if, you know, cause there's lots of reasons why that can come across wrong to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. So if you want to make a point to somebody that they've done a great job in articulating something, just be specific about what they've mm-hmm. said that meant something to you. I think and, it's all really good. Yeah. And, 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 and I know we have to move on, but I will also say to what Ross just said, we, that also means that we have to deal with our biases and we have to deal with the messages that we've been told and taught. And we have to deal with our internal, the internal messages that's been going on. So if you don't expect a person of color, a black person to speak well, 
or to be eloquent or to be educated, then that's something we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. If we, if you don't expect, you know, someone who doesn't look like you to be able to give a good point in a meeting, mm-hmm. that's something that you have to deal with. And that's not the responsibility of the person of color. Right. That's not their responsibility to, to show you, you know what, for the longest time, I didn't know black people could speak well. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's not, that black person is going to look at you crazy. And they're going <laughs> to, you know, all these mental gymnastics going on because if they then say, are you kidding me? Then mm-hmm. HR is involved and it's a whole long thing. Mm. Right. Right. <laughs> so, Very messy. Or we, or we just say, wait, why did I, why did not expect? That did not expect them mm-hmm. to be able to do well. Why did I did I not expect them to live in this neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Why did not expect them to, you know, to go to this college or university? Why did not did I not expect them to be at this restaurant with me or this in this shopping center with me or in this mall with me? Mm-hmm. What is going on with me that I did not expect it? That it is surprise when it happens. And as we're talking to our children, it's like, well, why don't you expect people to be in your classrooms who don't look like you? Mm-hmm. What is the history of this land that the school is built on? What is what has been the history of the administration? What has been the, because then it becomes like, wait a second, I have to teach before I send my young person off to this school. You know, so if they're just surprised, why mm-hmm. is it that we're still having, you know, teachers who don't look like anybody in the school and they're hired for the first time at the school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What has been going on? So mm-hmm. that when my child gets in the car, it's like, oh, Miss McBride, you know, said this today. Well, why is that a surprise? Mm-hmm. Or why didn't you want to go to her office? Or why? Did... So that's the stuff that we have to do. That's the work before engaging with another person of color or as we engage with the person of color. This has been so interesting already of like so many things swirling in my head. I, it's reminding me of, I, I this last weekend, we went to an art museum and they had a whole thing on, it was an entire exhibit on African-American art. And many of them were incorporated lists of of people who were killed by the police. So that made for a interesting conversation. My son happens to be very justice minded. That that is a thing about him. He notices things, wanted to know more information. I was telling him that young boys, practically his he's 12. So I was like, mm-hmm. not that yeah. around your age, you know, went to get candy from a store uh, where this man was jogging in a neighborhood and was killed. Why? Because of the color of his skin. And we, we got to talking about that. And he, he does tend to see a lot of, of things that, that he thinks this is racism. Often it is. You have a chapter in your book where you're talking about is it always about race? And mm. that I wrote in a, a note above it to ask you about this because he came home yesterday. So at dinner time, he said to me that a boy who was white flipped off another boy who was black. And he said, he's racist. Uh. 
And so, and knowing that this has been on his mind, we just went to the art museum. We have had these conversations. It's very fresh. So I have no, I know nothing about this other child. I, I don't know anything about these children. Um, and I don't know what has happened before or after or in between. I just know this one thing. So this is probably a common situation that happens. So I'm curious from you, when a parent hears that from their child, mm. that's racist or that was racist. What, what is our response to be in that situation so that it is a productive conversation? It's not pushed off, but it's also not made like, yes, that was racist because that may not right. be. So, so what is the, how do, how are we to respond in that situation? That's a great Robin, that's a great, great question because it's so multi-layered. There's so much going on there. Like, can I unpack a little bit, Chandler? I would like you to unpack. Yes. Well, I mean, because I mean, I'm asking for everybody, but hey, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And right. They're always teaching us, right? I mean, so there's a so first of all, you have the particular characteristic character of your child who is and and young people more more so than others, but they go through, especially at this age, like they are very trying to figure out what is right and wrong in the world. And also what is wonderful is that they get galvanized by that. They see things that are wrong and they want to do something about it, which is a good thing. It's a good thing. And they need their parents who are guiding them along the way because in their, you know, in their enthusiasm and their passion, things can get very complicated for people around them and for them and for themselves too. I mean, there's all different kinds of iterations of how things get get complicated, but you know, it's, it's important for them to process their feelings and be able to process like what they do know and what they don't know. And I think one of the things that's important for a parent, and this is the sex, so you've got the character of the child and what they're, where they are developmentally, but you also have a parent who it's really understandable that these things really push our buttons and parents have a real need to have an answer in those situations. And we are driven to have a certainty and an answer. And we think we have to provide certainty to young people at all times. What they need certainty in is our emotional equilibrium or our ability to come back, right? And say, what you do in your podcast all the time, Robin, is what you're talking about. Basically, is like, how do we maintain our equilibrium, you know, and parenting can get us like really up and down. So you, I think the most important thing is also tracking your own first response to this, right? So you don't ask a million questions. You don't make a million, you don't start making assumptions. You don't think that you need to go call the school right away. Like all of those things. It is, to my mind, it is asking your child a few questions, not 10, about why they, why they perceive that. And also being able to say, you know, there's a possibility, which I think in this case, so Shantara, tell me if you, what you think about this, obviously, is that he doesn't know, right? Those kids could just be really angry at each other. Or, I mean, that kid, it could have been racist. It could, or based on race and racism. It could have been on that they um, are really good friends and got into a fight and they were, and that's the way they, you know, said goodbye to each other, ah. <laughs> right? Um, that was the, and in fact, for boys, because boys are complicated with the way that they, you know, come back together again, they could have gotten into a really big fight and actually flipping each other off could have been like their way of getting back together again. We're good. Yes. So, right. Like we're good. So there's all different kinds of ways. And I think that the most important is to be asking your child 
Um, why do you think so? And also, if you were in a situation with somebody where somebody was being racist, where you decided that that was happening, what do you want to do? Like, what do you think? And then having those, that's the conversation I think we have to have, not we have to have certainty. I have to understand what's happening. I have to go to the school and complain. It is slow your role and really focus on your kid and, um, and understanding how he's processing what he's seeing. Yeah. What do you I think? Totally agree. I, I totally agree because I think <clears throat> we don't know what the kid did. We don't know no. the situation. We don't. Right. And so I think for a lot of times there are people, um, in under the umbrella of being allies who will jump way <laughs> totally you know, who will jump in and make it a thing and it's not a thing and so the 12 year olds are like wait a minute i, I was saying bye like that's what, <laughs> that's what we were I doing mean, you know you think it's rude but that's the way i say bye that's, that's our <laughs> love language that's what we do <laughs> exactly <laughs> and so i think it's really but i will say i love that I love the lens of justice. I love the lens of, of looking at like, that's wrong. Yeah, that's this wrong. is wrong. Right. That is him. Right. That is him. That right. is wrong. Right. And I mean, yeah, you don't want somebody, you know, giving somebody the finger just because right. that, that right. part either. So it's also understanding, oh, so if it's really being cured, it's like, what happened? What do you, you know, what happened with them? Or why, why do you, what, what happened? Mm-hmm. And so if it's just, well, that person's black. And so they're not supposed to do that. Yeah. But what happened? Mm-hmm. Like what, what happened during the day? Do you know what happened? Because yeah, something could have happened in math class or in science, you know, and, and mm-hmm. th- this is their opportunity to give back or like what Ross said, they're saying goodbye for the day. Mm-hmm. Weird well, love language. Weird. I, I do think that my, my son does not think highly of the person who did the flipping. So, uh, you yeah. know, and so there is a, there's an additional lens there. Yes, sure, uh, I, I did certainly, I certainly did get that. Absolutely. But so, so if we were to take it further and uh, let's step back for a minute and, and look a little bit wider. So there's a lot of talk about allyship right now. Um, and, And so if we are wanting our kids to be allies, what does that really look like in a a school situation? What kind of situations would there be um, that that would promote allyship, that would make it so somebody should step up in some way? Because as you talk about in your book, that allyship is not just being sympathetic. That's not the 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 beginning and end of allyship. There's more to it. So, yeah. if we are to tr- to to help our kids become allies, what does that really mean in in a real live school situation? Well, what I would really like is for white parents, parents who are not, for, you know, black, black and brown. So I'm including my people, I'm including Jewish people in this, that um, we have to know and make, I want parents to make the assumption that their children have um, seen racist comments on their feed or in their group chat, mm-hmm. that they have participated in some way in those racist group chats, uh, jokes, whatever, um, that their children have, um, are confused about using the N word, 
for example, because they have white friends um, who've said, it's fine, we listen to it on the music or this is, just, or it's a way to prove that they're sort of in or something like that. I want parents to assume that their children are in the mix of racism and that it is complicated and that your child and that our children, I'm including mine in this, our children um, sometimes do things that we, that we are like, no way, there's no way our kid would do that. And the more we talk in generalities about race and racism, or the more that we fight on being able to talk about it in schools in, in ways that are um, thoughtful, self-reflective, substantive, right? That um, the more that we fight those things, the more our children are going to be in this world of this amount of racism and not have the skills and not know our values about where we stand and have the skills to be able to do something about it. And I will tell you as a parent of two white boys um, that I've had plenty, and this is, and, and I think this is a really hard thing about parenting. Um, and this is not the clean, perfect answer, right? That, that I think we sometimes think we, we, um, that we're looking for. As a parent, I can be in control of, if I'm hearing somebody say something racist in a carpool, in my house, something like that, and they're my, fr- and they're my kids' friends, I can say and have said, have no problem saying, hey, that you're saying right now, not saying, you're not saying it. And I only can control my house or in my car, but you have to know, love you. You're in my house, you eat my food, love you. And because of that, I'm holding you to a standard, not a high standard, by the way. Let's not say that saying anti, like being anti-racist is like a high standard. Um, It is a decency, dignity standard of this is not happening. And, um, and I don't care if you hear it among other families. I don't care. And you know, because I love you. You're my kid's friend. This is not happening. This is the standard I hold you to. So I have control over that. And I think we absolutely have the responsibility to say that regardless if our children think that's embarrassing because we should, they, they're, it is fine for us to do things that are embarrassing when we are showing our values about upholding other people's dignity. So that's, it's fine if our kids are embarrassed about that. That's what we should be putting our our foot down about. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, with our children, when our children are in these really complex social dynamics, for them, and this is the conversations I've had with my own kids, where they have had to learn, but they have been silent when I've wanted them to speak out, that um, I live in Colorado, there's a lot of racism against Mexicans here. A lot of jokes, a lot of horrible things that I that were really hard that for me to learn about because because I, I wasn't raised here. So when my kids say to me, yeah, this thing happened and I say, well, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? And they say, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to say anything um, because it's I just I, mom, I don't want to do it. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And for me to be able to say, OK, in this situation, you know, I do want you to, can we talk about maybe what could possibly you could say? So the next time it happens, you are more prepared, but taking off the pressure on that moment, which is not a perfect answer, right? Me, I want them to say something. I want them to be like your kid, like your son and be like, that's wrong, right? Like I want them to do that. And I know that if I push them and push them and push them, that they're not gonna talk to me about this ever again. And that there's no room for discussion and for a process for them to learn how to speak out. So I, I know, parenting expert that I am, I know that my children have not said things or done things that I have wanted them to do in situations that have called for it. And my hope is 
my expectation is, is that as they get older and as they are getting older, that they are making decisions and learning to speak out through the process. Mm. Yeah. I think part of, um, part of raising young people to want to be allies is meeting them where they are. And a lot of times it's so, they're just like adults, adults. There are adults who like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Or, you know, the summer of 2020 happened, we're in 2023. So everything's fine, right? Like the pandemic is over. We're all back to work. We're all back to doing what's normal. Mm-hmm. And I think understanding that young people are feeling the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Young people are seeing, and, and they are, they're wanting to operate just like adults. And unfortunately, unfortunately, there was no timeline. There is no timeline to when this, this, and I want to say systemic racism in America isn't over, you know? And so, but meeting young people where they are and and understanding they're still developing and understanding they're not going to always see the inequity when it comes to their school. They're not going to always see the the um the racism when it comes to school boards. They're not going to always see um what's happening in in their schools, on their sports teams, on their dance teams. They're not going to always see it. And so as we are wanting them to speak up and to be allies and to to um to risk losing something to sacrifice losing something to sacrifice making school aware we got to under also understand that they're still developing and they mm-hmm. may not want to do it young mm-hmm. people don't want to lose anything they don't want to sacrifice anything they don't you know and so it's scary it's so scary it's very scary and and, and that so, doesn't make them racist right like right. i mean like right it, makes it doesn't them make 13. them racist it makes them 13 it makes doesn't make them bad people it doesn't make you a bad parent it doesn't make it doesn't it's we are mm-hmm. on a process of handling difficult things which means we got to give each other some grace along the way yeah. right so when kids who are 13 say something racist and it's caught on social media god forbid and then the whole community says like oh my gosh like what a terrible child and what terrible mm-hmm. parents and parents, everything yeah. that is mm-hmm. not an opportunity that is not the the situation in which people who have made this mistake are given the space to be able to do better. They just understandably get more defensive and more hunkered down. So we're not saying like, don't hold those, don't hold that child accountable, but mm-hmm. do it in a way that doesn't create immense amounts of shame and feeling like he doesn't belong in his community because mm-hmm. we've got to be able to do that work. We gang up on people so quickly. Yes. And it, it all, the only thing it does is makes us feel like temporarily self-righteous. And then, yeah. you know, someone's going to come around to us one day, right? I mean- If there there is a a desire or space to recognize what happened wasn't right, Mm -hmm. because I think this whole, we got to give each other grace is really great. As some, I preach and, you know, as someone who is, I I learned that from Shantara, right? (laughs) Someone, (laughs) someone who probably, you know, puts on this identity of of being a Christian, right? And, and this whole idea of, well, I need to extend grace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do. I really do. And I need to also pay attention to, um, to see if grace is being sought because if Mm. this is, if this idea of, 
oh, I'm that person made a mistake. And if that person acknowledges that some that's a mistake and then they do it again, okay, all right then. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna tell you once again <laughs> that that calling me that is not cool. Or recognizing right. okay, I hear you, great. And then a week goes by and you do it again. It's like, huh. No, and then you're in a situation where this person is clearly is thinking, I'm not taking the principles of this community seriously. So there's got to be some common sense between like you make one mistake, but when parents are saying that can't be my kid, I've always said um, the minute you say that kind of stuff, yeah, it is your kid. And it's much more likely the more you say it's not my kid, it's not my community. That means you are not willing to see what's in front of you. And the more you're not willing to see what's in front of you, the world's going to show you more and more and more. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So if, if we turn the tables and it's now not your kid, it's your grandfather who is at the holiday table (laughs) and, and you've been taught to respect those who are older, who know Mm -hmm. more, who have been, who have had tough things in their lives, have had experiences and the, you know, the, you're, you're at the table, your kids are at the table, they're at the table, metaphorically and physically. And your grandfather says, well, back in my day, and then says something demeaning and racist. And then somehow with like, well, you know, I don't mean anything by that. It's just the way it was. And your kids are watching and listening right in that moment. What is the don't do that and say that? And what is the do say that and do that in that very uncomfortable real life situation? Yeah, I think it's important to be who you want to be and be who you want your kids to see. Mm -hmm. I think it's totally safe in saying, you know what, grandpa, that's true. Back in your day, we're in a new day. You know, and I am teaching my children this, or I'm teaching my children to treat everyone with dignity. Mm. But what I I want to acknowledge what you just said back in your day. And that's mm. fine. You don't have to dismiss grandpa. You don't have to make grandpa feel like dust. You don't have to do any of that. You can simply be who you want to be in front of your children mm. and say, not cool. This is what we are going to treat everyone with dignity. Mm-hmm. And then even if family members say, yeah, but they're not here. We're, we're here. We're only, you know, we're, we're with each other. There's no one here. Mm-hmm. And then you can say, even if they're not physically here in this room, mm-hmm. I am teaching my children to treat everyone with dignity. What was just said is not treating everyone with dignity. That's it. That's all. Mm-hmm. That's it. You don't have to and it- have an argument. You don't have to fight. You don't have to make a scene. You don't have to make a big deal. You can just say, I want to treat everyone with dignity and I want my children to see that, mm-hmm. period. I like the period. And Excellent. If, if, yeah. Yes. And if they keep pushing at you, because, you know, we have our families love. You're so us, sensitive, right? but you're so <laughs> sensitive. And you yeah, know why you think it's such a big right. And why so you what such you say deal? is, Let's go on yeah, out. so what you do is you say, you take a breath and you say, you know what? I'd love to have this conversation with you later. So is after dinner a good time? Because I don't want to be, you know, taking away from the good hard work that people did to put this food on the table. 
Thank and you. That As way, the person who's making the food. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> all day long with the okay? food. You turn to the person who did with the food and you're like, is that okay with you? Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's because what happens is people take advantage of how upset we get. And then also maybe the lower position of power or in the hierarchy of the family. And that gives us, it gives the ability to even more dismiss, demean um, mm-hmm. what is being said. You and and when you're feeling demeaned is when you start get it's when people start getting like really riled up. So it's mm-hmm. really important to have control over yourself in that situation by saying, you know, I do want to have this conversation. When you say it like this, I do want to have this conversation with you, but not right now because I want to I don't want to take away from the work that this person did, put this food on the table. When is a good time for you? And mm-hmm. that's the face. It's not like in your face okay. and it's not passive. It's like, when's a good time for you? Because I really would like to know. And that is the way your children need to see you, which is competent, confident handling. That is what they need. Um, Another thing I would say is that afterwards with your kids, you can say to them, you know, I I want you to respect the position of your of of a grandfather. It's really important to me that you that you respect those kinds of positions. But when people within those positions are taking away the dignity of other people, you don't have to respect those actions. Oh, that's good stuff right there. Taking the behavior uh, out and highlighting that behavior over the person. Right. You got some crazy uncle who just loves to get at you. You're like, you know what? (laughs) Uncle's really important. It's really important in a family, you know, and you know what? Sometimes people are complicated. Uncles can be complicated. Mm -hmm. So in general, respect that position when they're saying things that take away the dignity of other people by, you know, it, you know, by making fun of them, demeaning them, you know, that's, a, that's not actions you need to respect. What do you say? You say you, you're, don't be hard on people, be hard on ideas. That's what you say. Exactly. Yes. That's, that's a good illustration of that. Okay. Give me your top tip. If you could leave us with one tip to make sure that we are getting what you really need us to get from courageous discomfort, what would it be? Um, I would say read the book. Um, and <laughs> that's, that's, that's Good the idea. first tip. Yeah. That's the first tip. But I would also say um, it, when, when it comes to, and I'm glad you brought up, be easy on people, hard on ideas. That was the hardest part for me to, to write and for me to sit with. And I think that when we really understand what it means to be easy on people and hard on ideas, the um, understanding that people people are trying, especially if you know they're trying. And so I would I would really just strongly meet people where they are as they are trying. Keep being uncomfortable. You know, keep me. And I think we we run from discomfort. We run from it. We want everything in our world to be easy and to be. Nah, it's not. That's that's not life. But keep, not everything's yoga pants. Listen, listen <laughs> which is my favorite piece of clothing. Um, but I think you'd get that. <laughs> I understand. But re- just sit in the discomfort and just know that it's making our world a better place for everybody. But sitting in the discomfort is okay. Thank you. I want people to take away that, you know, if if you are running to or think that reading a parenting book is really important, you know, Robin, you've you've written wonderful books. I've written books. If you are somebody who loves and sees the importance of reading a parenting book because you really think that it relates to you and, and preparing for being a good parent, all that. 
I'm asking you to think about this book with the same sense of urgency and that it will help your parenting in this in very similar ways as these parenting books, as good parenting books will. And I'd like for people to think about that with the same sense of urgency of I need this. It's not summer 2020 past. The issues are here and they affect you. Engaging, I, I, engage. I, I agree with that. I, I ask questions on my professional Facebook page and sometimes they get, I mean, just enormous amount of comments. And one of them we were asked, I was asking about what do you have an enormous amount of? And my answer was parenting books. And there've been a lot of talk underneath that one of one person that caused a whole snuffle mm. Kerfuffle um, was, you know, a person who was like, if you need to read books, then you shouldn't have children. And I was like, huh, you know, because I'm always looking to 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 learn more, to grow Mm -hmm. more, to and never assume, you know, it all. So, right. This is one of those areas that it's really important to dive into because the book makes you think. And and it, if you walk away from from reading that book with having gone through some thought process on your own to think about where your your upbringing, how your upbringing influenced you, how where you lived influenced you, how your stories, your interactions influenced you, that's that's good. You know, you're you're making some progress. It's not you're going to read this book and all of a sudden. Boom, everything is perfection, but it will get you to think, and I'm so appreciative of it. Can you give us the resource of the week? Where can we go to get more information about you, your book, and your great work you're doing? Well, they, well, Courageous Discomfort has its own website, CourageousDiscomfort.com, and I have my website, RosalindWiseman.com. Chantara, you want to say yeah. yours? Yeah, it's two things. If you put in ShantaraMcBride.com, it will also lead you to MarvelousUniversity.com. Um, but I agree with Ross. I think CourageousDiscomfort.com, it, where you you can order the book from there. You can also get it on Amazon, but you can go to CourageousDiscomfort.com. Um, and it's also, I think for, I've learned recently, there are a lot of people doing book clubs about the book. And on the website, we actually have book club you know, questions to get people started. And, you know, so I think it's a great resource for those who want, you know, folks who want to learn more. Yeah, this is, this has been great. And for all those who are listening, you're running around, you're driving a car. Don't worry. I got you. Uh, We will have show notes and all of the links will be on those show notes. And there's an audio book with me and Chandera. There you go. You can listen to it in the car or while you're running. That's right. If you, if you, yes, um, listen to our, to more of us. This is, this is awesome. And I just want to thank you both for being on the show today, for talking to us about, about your book and about your, the background that brought you to the book all of these great stories and really your do this, not that is, is extremely helpful as we are courageously very uncomfortable, (laughs) but that's okay. You know, courageous discomfort. That's, that's what it's all about. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. You are welcome, Robin.
Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. You can go up onto Facebook or the Dr. Robin Silverman page. Let's chat about it, drrobinsilverman.com. I'm also on Twitter and Dr. Robin on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. I'm going to be going back and forth with Rosalind Wiseman, with Shintara McBride. We are going to be talking all about this for the whole week. And also I'm going to be creating memes with some of the amazing things that were said today. So slap those things right on the meme. You can <laughs> deliver it all over the place. All of your followers can look at these great things because you know, some things were said and you're like, Hey, that's one of those ones that I want my uncle to see. Yes, let's do that. Let's put them up there. And if you will go to iTunes and rate and review this podcast, I'd so appreciate it. The more that you give those five-star reviews, the more it gets out there, the more everybody knows about Rosalind Weizmann and Shintara McBride and their amazing book and the great work that they did getting uncomfortable and writing it for all of us. Thank you all for the time we had today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please go to drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget, there's a tomorrow. Parenting often provides the ultimate do-over. So if you heard something, you did something, your kid came home and said something, you go, oh my goodness, after listening to this podcast today, I should have said that. I shouldn't have said that. I messed up. That's okay. You can go back and you could say, hey, I wish I said this instead. Can we have that conversation again? Can we engage in this again? Hey, Uncle Larry, I want to have this conversation that I shut down last Thanksgiving. Let's have that. I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.